Why am I so zoomed in? That's not what you will look like. It's just, uh, I guess, that we can all see each other. Okay. I have more of a zoomed out face, you know? It's, it's a little more flattering. Your best side is when you're very, very small. Yeah, I'm very zoomed out. I am best video not on a Monday morning, so. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drew. If you're still wondering what went wrong with polling in 2020, we might have some answers for you today. Last week, the American Association for Public Opinion Research released a comprehensive report addressing why we saw a historically large polling error in the 2020 election. The group includes many leading pollsters from across the industry, and they've been dissecting the accuracy of 2020 polls since before the election was conducted. Ultimately, the report offers several hypotheses, but states, quote, identifying conclusively why polls overstated the Democratic-Republican margin relative to the certified vote appears to be impossible with available data. We're going to ask whether that is a good or bad use of polling analysis. We'll also continue our walk down memory lane with a segment we're calling Where Are They Now? The Democratic Presidential Primary Candidates of 2020. So we saw a record number of Democrats vie for the nomination in 2020, more than two dozen. And it seemed like some candidates got into the race on the theory that even if they weren't going to be president, a profile-raising run might be good for their careers. So almost a year out from the Democratic National Convention, was it? We're going to discuss, and here with me to do it, our managing editor, Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hello, everybody. Also here with us, politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hey, Galen. And elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. So let's talk about that American Association for Public Opinion Research report. And that group is also known as APOR for short, which is easier than repeating that again and again. They found that national surveys of the presidential election were the least accurate in four decades, and that state-level polls were the least accurate in at least two decades. Estimates were off by four and a half points for the national popular vote and higher at around 5.1 points for state-level presidential polls. Now, I want to take a moment here to note that I know this can all seem a bit academic, but it's really more than that. I mean, the idea that accurate polling matters is essentially the idea that knowing what Americans think or believe matters on everything, including, yes, a presidential election, but also vaccine hesitancy, the reach of disinformation, support for a war or health care or education policy. So polling is one of the best tools we have for understanding how Americans are thinking about many aspects of their lives. OK, so those are the stakes here. Back to the report. It offers some possible explanations for the polls being off and rules out others, but as I mentioned, does not come to an overarching conclusion. Listeners have likely heard some of the explanations before, such as some Trump supporters being less inclined to respond to pollsters. They rule out possibilities like late deciding voters and not waiting for education, which were common explanations for the polling error in 2016. Okay, now, Alex, Micah, Nathaniel, this was a more than 100-page long report. I've mentioned a couple of the things that were included in the report, but I want to hear from each of you. What was your takeaway from the report about the polling error in 2020? Nathaniel, kick us off. I mean, I think the main takeaway is just that we still don't really know what happened and that more research is going to be necessary to determine that. But I do think it's also notable that a lot of the theories that people have kicked around since the election are still very much in play. For example, there is a theory that there was something about the pandemic. Maybe Democrats were more likely to stay home during the pandemic and therefore they were more likely to pick up the phone. There also could have just been this was such a high turnout election and it was just very hard to get the likely voter models correct. Or maybe there was something about these kind of lower propensity voters that make them different from the types of voters who normally turn out. And the theory that has become probably the most in vogue, although the AAPOR report was careful to say that this can't be proven kind of by its nature, is that there's something specific about Trump voters that make them less likely to pick up the phone, independent of other things that you can weight polls by, so things like college education or race or things like that. And that could come down to something like 
Trump voters being skeptical of institutions. For example, most pollsters are affiliated with either a media outlet or a university, which are both seen as persona non gradi among Trumpy Republicans these days. But again, a lot of this is very speculative. And while it kind of makes sense and it fits what we do know, there's still a lot that we don't know. Yeah, just going off of that, I did think there's this big question of what we don't know. And so as someone who was reading their report, obviously, that was a bit frustrating that we weren't able to say like definitively, here's what went wrong. Here's what we can do better. But I did think overall the analysis was very useful because they did help to Nathaniel's point. They identified plausible culprits for, you know, why we saw the numbers that we did and how they differed from 2016 and 2018. And posing those questions now, like, is there a significant portion of the electorate who's just not going to answer a pollster's phone calls? Or has COVID just dramatically changed the way that we go about polling? And will that have impacts in the future? I feel like now is the time to be asking those questions so that we can improve on this in 2022 and 2024. So that's probably where I found the most use in reading the report. Yeah, you know, Natalie Jackson, who's the research director over at PRRI, had a really interesting piece essentially saying that it's encouraging or it's, or it could be good news that we don't have a concrete answer for what went wrong with the polls in 2020. This is in contrast, obviously, with 2016, where pollsters felt like they had a pretty good handle on what went wrong. In particular, there were late deciders who swung towards Trump, and there was a failure to wait for education, which has become an increasingly important fault line in our politics. So what Natalie wrote was that this year, because we can't just point to one thing, hey, it's the carburetor, we need to fix that, that will encourage pollsters to try a bunch of different things, to experiment, to fool around with how they're weighting stuff, how they're reaching out to people. And those experiments and the variety that's inherent in that, because there isn't one remedy we're looking at here could yield better results in the long run or the medium run than in the post-2016 polling landscape. So that's kind of like a positive spin on this that I found encouraging. Yeah. And we should say that it's kind of our position at 538 that you can't predict polling error in advance. And a big reason for that is that, say, there's a big polling error one year, pollsters will try to adjust and correct for the biases that created that polling error. And sometimes maybe they'll even over adjust. And then that makes the next polling error either smaller or it makes it maybe Democratic leaning, whereas before it was Republican leaning or something like that. And so I do think that there is obviously this narrative that the polls are broken and that they're always going to be overestimating Democrats now. But that wasn't true, notably in 2018. And I think it's far from certain that that will continue to be true going forward, even as the polling industry does face clearly some challenges and some things that they ought to look into. Micah, you drew a comparison between 2020 and 2016, whereas in 2016, we largely chalked it up to waiting by education and late deciding undecided voters, essentially, that still towards the end of the election, there were a lot of undecideds that ultimately broke towards Trump. Does this report throw into question any of the conclusions that we came to after 2016? If it is the case that are less inclined to respond to pollsters than Republicans who maybe were undecided or considering Biden or not voting or something like that, could that have also been the case in 2016? Like, do we need to go back and reconsider our takeaways from even the 2016 election? To an extent. I mean, I don't think we should completely throw out the lessons we learned from 2016 in terms of, one, keeping a very close eye on how many undecided voters there are, particularly in the waning weeks of a campaign, and factoring that into your analysis and your read of the race. And two, waiting by education. Education has become really important in terms of which side of the partisan divide voters fall on. That said, I think what's interesting and frustrating about 2020 is there doesn't seem to be a variable that pollsters failed to account for other than not finding enough Republican voters. 
Trump voters specifically, although in down ballot races, Republican candidates were also underestimated. I'm trying to make a distinction between people who vote for Republican candidates and like self-identified Republicans. Like it might be that they had enough Republicans, but they were kind of less Trumpy or they were less loyal to the party. Exactly. Right. Because they explicitly say in this report that the polls do wait for Republicans. So like it's almost like they got the number of Republicans right, but the number of Trump supporters wrong, potentially. And that's the big unanswered question here. The closest to report And look, these are the smartest people in the polling industry doing really smart analysis. The closest they come to an answer is to basically say, but they don't have proof of this, but they sort of like, this is where they're kind of leaning, is to basically say, we think polls are not reaching a group of Republican voters who are dissimilar to the Republicans we are reaching in some way. That way being, they are more likely to vote for Republican candidates. So it basically just comes down to, for some reason, we are not reaching enough Republican voters. Now, the kind of handiest explanation for that, I think, is the politicization of polling itself. We've seen over the years Trump attack polls, deride real scientific polls as fake polls if they're not flattering to him. And so you could imagine a world where Trump's most diehard supporters, or even put aside Trump for a second and just say the conservative voters who are most distrustful of institutions and the establishment and media and science and whatever are just not responding to polls. They're not picking up the phone. They're not participating. And if that's the case, that's a big problem. You know, for years, response rates have been falling and we didn't really see a drop in the accuracy of polls until recently, right? So it feels a little bit kind of like the chickens are coming home to roost. But I'd go back to what Nathaniel said, which is we've now had two of the last three elections have underestimated Republican support, basically. Three of the last four, if you include 2014. Yeah, three of the last four, let's say. That's not all that many. That's a pretty small sample. So who's to say what that means for 2022 or 2024? Now, I think this report and many other people have made like compelling cases for why maybe this isn't just a fluke and we do have a problem reaching these voters. But still, it's all very tentative. I think in their analysis, they did raise the possibility that the polls will sort of bounce back to normal with Trump not on the ballot. And that was one thing they said when they were looking at the difference between 2016 and 2018 polls, since 2018 polls were so much better, but then 2020 polls were worse than 2016. So if this is a problem related specifically to Trump, it'll be interesting to see what the 2022 polls say. Now, if he's on the ballot in 2024, I don't know exactly how they correct for it, because if if they're trying to get a segment of the population who's just not picking up the phone and not answering pollsters' calls, I don't have a solution off the top of my head, but I don't know what pollsters can really do to fix that. This is like obviously a speculative question, but do you guys think it is specific to Trump? Because I tend to think not, at least mostly not. I think it's possible that Trump appealed to a segment of the population who specifically turned out to vote for him and maybe wasn't as motivated to come out in 2018. But I mean, if that's true, I guess it raises the possibility that things could return to normal in the future. But I don't know. I don't think I can say definitively. I think it's potentially not specific to Trump, but specific to the ways that the parties are changing. And so like, Maybe if Trump isn't on the ballot, but somebody who campaigns to a Republican Party that is in Trump's vision of what the Republican Party should be, that we could still see some of those challenges because that vision of the Republican Party does kind of like hype up some distrust in institutions. And so I don't know if just Trump not being on the ballot would fix that aspect of it. Yeah, I think Trump more kind of exemplified and sort of catalyzed what was already there, this kind of distrust of institutions and a rejection of expertise. But look, certainly Trump helped it along with how much he attacked polling. Like we had never seen a a candidate or a president attack polling so directly and so often. So surely he helped it along. But I tend to think if this is causing the lack of response to these polls, it's more widespread than Trump. And I think the evidence for that is the 
polls underestimated down-ballot Republicans too, more than Trump, I think, actually. Yeah, that comes up in this report that in senatorial and gubernatorial races statewide, that Republicans, there was more of an underestimate among polls than for Trump in those same states. Well, a potential theory for that is, you know, we talk, I think we've mostly been focusing on perhaps these really kind of low social trust Republicans who are opting out of polls for that reason. But we had a piece on the site from contributor Emily Eakins. It outlined two reasons, and that was one reason. But then another reason is that perhaps that a lot of college-educated Republicans who are in suburbs, for example, who are still voting for Trump and down-ballot Republicans aren't participating in polls because of social desirability bias. Basically, they feel like they're surrounded by similarly well-educated, woke suburbanites, and they feel like they can't share that they're voting for Trump, and maybe that's why they're opting out of polling. And this is distinct, I would point out, from the shy Trump voter theory, which is specifically that people are lying to pollsters about their support, which there is very little to no evidence for. But maybe they're they're kind of opting out, and, and that's something that would be consistent with, you think about in the suburbs of Atlanta or something like that, where you saw Trump had a certain level of support, but Republicans, down-ballot Republicans, did even better. So so clearly, I think there is a strain of people, though they are small, and I think that the people often think about split ticket voters a lot more than they ought to, given that 95% of people don't split their tickets. But clearly, there is the small strain of people who really kind of really want to vote Republican, and they do so in spite of Trump and maybe even vote for Trump in spite of his actions. I want to ask you guys a little bit about how this report was received, but first, Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. After this APOR report came out, Politico published a piece looking at their analysis titled, quote, pollsters, colon, impossible to say why 2020 polls were wrong. That's the end of the title. So people reading or skimming headlines might think, wow, polls are broken and no one has any idea why it's even happening. You know, polls are no good. And so I'm curious if the ultimate conclusion that they came to and the way that it's been received by the broader media ecosystem makes sense. Because they say in this report, a big part of the reason that they can't know for sure why polls were off is that we simply don't have data showing the difference between people who did respond to polls and those who didn't. Like, we can't go do a whole survey of people who specifically didn't respond to polls in the first place. At the same time, they are pretty clear about which hypotheses they think could have contributed to the polling error and which they have ruled out, basically. Does it make sense that the ultimate conclusion is that, quote, impossible with the available data? Or can we be a little more precise about, about what we do and don't know? This won't come as a surprise, I think, to longtime listeners. But like, I think the coverage of this report, and this is true of coverage of polls in general, usually, is just like way overwrought. Polls had a bad year in 2020. It was not orders of magnitude worse than 2016, which itself wasn't that unusual. Now, look, I don't want to say, oh, everything's fine, because it's not. The polls were off and off in a meaningful way. And there are real worrying trends in terms of response rates and these voters that pollsters are having trouble reaching, as we've been talking about. But like, we're not talking about a ahistoric failure here, really. We're talking about a failure that's towards the larger end 
of the spectrum we've seen in modern times. Now, if you go back further, there have been far bigger polling errors. So like, I think all the coverage of this report and just polling in general, and we've, I mean, we've talked about this endlessly, but it needs to have a better appreciation for the fact that polls are inexact. They're the best tools we have to measure public opinion. And as you said at the top, Galen, measuring public opinion is important for a billion reasons before you get to horse race stuff. But polls are the best tools we have for measuring public opinion, but they're inexact. There's a margin of error and that margin of error is meaningful. And it's especially meaningful in a time in modern politics where most elections are close given polarization. So like, I think people should read this report and cover this report after like taking a couple deep breaths and just like calming down and, and look, like the people working on this are smart and they'll try stuff. Some of it will work, some of it won't. There will be polling errors in the future. Everybody just needs to chill out a little bit, I think. Also, 2020 was kind of the perfect storm in some ways. I mean, there was a pandemic. There were different ways of voting, high turnout, and you have Trump. All those things transformed survey participation this year. So to Micah's point, it might be unfair to look at what happened in 2020 and then make this sweeping conclusion that we're never going to improve from here. It's all downhill from here or anything like that. Alex makes a great point that 2020 was crazy. There was a pandemic. States were forced to rethink how they administered elections on the fly, basically. Voters had to figure all that out on the fly. I saw one study, I think, that found that there was a relationship between the extent of COVID cases in a state and how large the polling error was in that state. Now, at that time in October, there was also a correlation between the extent of COVID outbreaks and the partisanship of the state. They were all else being equal, worse in red states. So that gets a little messy in terms of trying to untangle it. But there was a pandemic. It was a crazy year. The fact that like polls were a little more off than they normally are should not be a huge shock. Do you agree with APOR that we don't have enough data to say why the polls were off? Or do you think we can say, hey, there are enough clear ideas of what might have gone wrong that we can basically paint a picture for folks? I don't want to second guess APOR. I I trust them. You do read the report and you come away thinking a lot of signs are pointing to this non-response issue. So in that sense, maybe the answer is a little clearer than they're willing to come right out and say, just in the sense of like, Clearly, polls are not reaching some voters they should be reaching. But APOR rightly has a pretty high standard for claiming something as a finding. Yeah, I mean, obviously, because the polls were wrong, there were some people that weren't being reached or there was some waiting problem at least. But I think even if we can say it was definitely due to this differential non-response, the question of why Trump supporters aren't responding is an important question. So, so no, I, I think it was fair of them to paint it that way and to offer a bunch of theories. You know, it may not be just one theory, it may be multiple of those theories. There could also be issues that they didn't identify. So I think that's all fair. We talked a little bit about iterating to try to get things more accurate in the future. And I want to read another quote from the report. They say, no mode of interviewing was unambiguously more accurate. Every mode of interviewing and every mode of sampling overstated the Democratic-Republican margin relative to the final certified vote margin. There were only minor differences in the polling error depending on how surveys sampled or interviewed respondents, regardless of whether respondents were sampled using random digit dialing, voter registration lists, or online recruiting, polling margins on average were too favorable to Democratic candidates. So we have talked a lot on this podcast over the five and a half years that we've been doing it about how methodology really matters. And in particular, this last cycle, there was a lot of attention paid to pollsters who were using text message because maybe that would reach some of the people who were less inclined to hang around and answer a pollster's questions over the phone. What did you make of that finding in particular? I mean, it kind of jived with what Nate found in his post-election analysis where famously or infamously our pollster ratings stopped giving extra credit to live caller phone polls, which have historically been the gold standard of the polling industry. But now it seems like there's really no evidence that they are significantly better than online polls, for instance. Yeah, this is a big development. 
for years and years and years, polls that used live callers were, as Nathaniel just said, considered the, the gold standard. And and that's not the case anymore. The data shows that. The post-election analysis, we did show that. This APOR analysis showed that. Again, I'd go back to that kind of Natalie Jackson spin on things and say, I think that's going to be good in the long term because it means people will try stuff. Actually, in our analysis, polls that use text messaging did okay. It's an incredibly small sample. And most polls, remember, are using multiple modes of of reaching out to people. But I think if in the next two, four, six, 10 years, pollsters are trying text messages, trying TikTok, I have no idea, (laughs) trying, you know, go back to the old days when like George Gallup would set up a table in front of a shopping center and and ask people like I think that's a good thing if they start trying a bunch of different things and we can and we can see what works rather than holding on to this notion that's now outdated that there's a right way to do a poll and a wrong way to do a poll I, that's just not true anymore I was reading a Q&A I'm sorry I'm forgetting the man's name and title but he was associated with the report and to your point Micah he had mentioned that pollsters are trying to basically find different ways to talk to voters. And he specifically mentioned Texas's 6th district, which is having its special election runoff tomorrow. And they said in order to reach voters, they were doing a mix of text messages, but also traditional landline calls, and then also mailing people things. And they were basically trying to see if they can get better response rates and see if they could get different types of people responding to the poll based on how they were reaching out to them. But I think to this, I think pollsters will just have to do a couple different experiments. And once they've done them all, then they can probably go back and see which ones are useful and which ones will be most fruitful for future polling. Yeah, and that should be especially interesting because it's a runoff between two Republicans. So maybe they may try to clarify which parts of Republican voters, which segments of the voting block are more or less likely to respond to a particular type of survey. I'll be interested to see, you know, if they come up with some clear signals there. And this is kind of where I wanted to wrap up this segment, which is what does the future look like in terms of polling? Are people going to turn to other things that aren't quite polling, like dissecting information on social media and so on and so forth in the way that campaigns sometimes do? What's the future look like after reading this report? I do think we'll see more of that. I think we already started to see it in 2016 and 2020, where people will try to derive vote intention from, quote unquote, big data. Quote unquote, big data, he says derisively. (laughs) Well, it's just like, you know, I think you'll see people look at, you know, they'll do what campaigns have historically done. Combine what magazines do people subscribe to with, you know, you can combine that with people's online accounts with whatever, 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 and try to derive vote intention. I think we'll have to wait several cycles before we have any idea of how well that works. The other thing I would just say is, and look, I'm biased, so take this with a grain of salt, but this to me is just like another reminder of why 538 covers elections the way we cover them is because polls again, are the best tool we have, but they're inexact. And so you can't just look at a poll or a polling average and say, okay, the leader is going to win. That's just not how it works. They're too inexact for that. Figuring out what the polls mean is complicated. It takes a sense of political history and math and stats and all that stuff. And so that's like, you know, I'm like plugging ourselves here. TLDR, stick with us folks. We'll get you through the next election. (laughs) It's why we cover the things the way we do. You know, if polls were perfectly accurate, if they had ever been perfectly accurate, we could just say, look at the polling average. The leader is going to win. That's never been the case. What I hope doesn't happen, I hope people don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, polls, going back to where you started this, Galen, polls are really important. If the people who govern us have any care for what the people want and think and fear and hope for, then polls or some future version of polls will have to figure prominently in that up until the day where they implant the microchip in our brain and, you know, it's all just in the cloud and we have no need for polls or 538. (laughs) 
I think uh, Alex is like <laughs> following that. <laughs> Alex is like, uh, yeah, going off of that. Speaking of microchips, <laughs> no, but going forward, I I feel like we should just maybe adjust our expectations when it comes to polling. Particularly right now, we're just in a time where polling is very hard because of the reasons we talked about before, like pollsters have to talk to people who do not want to talk to them or who feel like polling is inherently flawed. We're in a pandemic for the foreseeable future which means maybe one side of the population is more likely to stay home and pick up the phone and talk to these people. And there are far more voters in 2020 than ever before, which makes it harder to assess the population. But to Micah's point, I don't see a better solution easily and readily available beyond like the polling that we're currently doing. And all that's to say, I think it might be better if we change how we think about polling rather than bash the entire polling industry entirely. Plus one billion to that. Amen. I think that's a good place to leave things for that conversation. But let's move on by looking even further back. So back to the 2020 Democratic presidential primary. I am running for president of the United States. Well, (laughs) together, you and I and our 2016 campaign began the political revolution. This is the fight of our lives. The principles that will guide my campaign for president are simple enough to fit on a bumper sticker. Freedom, security and democracy. I'm so excited. I want to give every American $1,000 a month. I am running for every American. For you. This is a defining moment of truth for this country and for every single one of us. I'm going to run for president of the United States because as a young mom, I will fight for your children as hard as I would fight for my own. I'm running for president to defeat Donald Trump and to unite and rebuild America. It's really that simple. I announce my candidacy for President of the United States of America. Our country's next mission must be to rise up to the most urgent challenge of our time, defeating climate change. I'm running for president because it's time for new leadership. I'm going to harness love for political purposes. I will meet you on that field, and sir, love will win. In both the most recent Democratic and Republican primaries, there were historically large fields. So more than a dozen Democrats in 2020 and 16 or 17 Republicans in 2016, depending on how you count. Even for people who don't seem to have a great shot or the traditional political experience, it seems to be the conventional wisdom that you don't lose all that much by getting in the race. You could boost your name recognition for a future run for office, grow your email and donor list, get a book deal, be appointed to the cabinet, or get picked for VP. So today, we're going to look at where the 2020 primary candidates are now and ask if running for president is always a good career move. So to jog your memory, I am going to rapid fire go through the list of 2020 Democratic candidates, and then we'll dig in one by one. Okay, so here we go. Let's see if this sounds insane to the listeners. We have Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar, Tulsi Gabbard, Elizabeth Warren, Mike Bloomberg, Pete Buttigieg, Tom Steyer, Deval Patrick, Michael Bennett, Andrew Yang, John Delaney, Cory Booker, Marion Williamson, and Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Steve Bullock, Joe Sestak, Wayne Sussman, Beto O'Rourke, Tim Ryan, Bill de Blasio, Kristen Gillibrand, Seth Moulton, Jay Inslee, John Hickenlooper, Eric Swalwell. Okay, so be thinking about that list of people who may have benefited their careers and, and who's better off today because they ran for president and who is worse off today or, or maybe no difference. And so for each, we're going to go in order. I'll ask you, Micah, Alex, Nathaniel, who is better or worse off? Let's start with an easy one. Joe Biden. Micah. I'll go out and let say better off. President of the United States <laughs> has a nice ring to it. Yes, plus one to everything Micah said. Yeah, I think he's better off. Oh, Nathaniel, spice it up a little bit. (laughs) He's worse off because being president sucks. (laughs) Right. So to clarify here, we're talking about in terms of their career. You know, there are all kinds of esoteric arguments you might be able to make about everyone on this list just being worse off. But uh, the next one, maybe interesting, Bernie Sanders. I'm actually going to say worse off here. We can come back to why. I say better off. I think his like political prospects are the same. His like ideology is better off. Interesting. Okay. So there's some disagreement here. Micah, do you want to stake out your worse off position? I think the argument I would make is about the kind of 
personal political leverage he has. Certainly Bernie Sanders, his ideology within the Democratic Party is in a better place now than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever. But I think what I would say is that after 2016, when Bernie did much better than I think a lot of people thought against Hillary Clinton, he had a huge amount of leverage within the party and almost all of his ideas, almost all of his campaign platform was on the rise within the party. In the wake of 2020, I think that was kind of his moment and he didn't win the nomination. And in the meantime, you've kind of seen other people on the left, AOC, Elizabeth Warren, many other people rise up and take a little bit of that space within the arena. I think he's a bit worse off after 2020. Alex and Nathaniel, do you want to rebut? I say better because I feel like Bernie's just never out of the spotlight. And if it's not him, then it's the larger progressive movement in general. And I think he often gets a lot of credit for helping usher that into the mainstream. You know, he came to D.C. as a bit of an outsider, and now he's the chair of the Senate Budget Committee. So he's in this unique spot of being a Democratic Socialist who's a key member of the establishment. And I don't know if he would have had that position had he not run in both 2016 and 2020. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at his reasons for running president and his ideology, I think clearly they're better off. Maybe this is too credulous, but I don't really think of Bernie as necessarily a a self-serving politician. I think he genuinely was running to get his ideas out there. And I think he did that. And I think in 2020 specifically, he dropped out of the race earlier than he probably needed to. He kind of cozied up to Biden in a way he certainly did not do with Hillary Clinton in 2016. And I think that you are seeing that reflected in a lot of Biden's priorities, like the amount of money that Biden is trying to spend with his infrastructure bill and with the COVID relief bill. It's really quite staggering. And I think that is the Bernie Sanders MO is, you know, let's pump a huge amount of money into government and government programs and, and works. Okay, a couple of things. One, look, Bernie Sanders has had like a generational impact on the Democratic Party. I'm not debating that. I think that is true. But the idea that he is not a self-interested politician, I think is very wrong. And I think if it were right, I think he probably would have behaved a little differently in 2016 with Hillary Clinton than he ended up doing, probably more like he did in 2020. In fairness, he maybe learned some lessons from 2016. But here's my final argument for why Sanders is worse off. In 2019, Bernie Sanders was probably one of three or four people who was most likely to be the next president. And now I think he's very far down on that list. So sure, if you remove personal interest and ambition, Maybe there's some argument he's better off, but just in terms of his stature and leverage within the party, I think 2020 was his moment and and he didn't win. Although he did well, but he didn't win. To kind of split the difference, in 2016, he's clearly better off having run for president in 2016, even if it was on that theory that we mentioned, which is that like, hey, even if you don't win, you'll boost your profile and your ideas or whatever. And he kind of started this momentum within the party. But in 2020, the whole country and the Democratic Party got to watch as he lost every county in Michigan. So he probably, by running again in 2020, helped kind of erode some of the momentum that his progressive movement had, because when he ultimately ran against the more moderate candidate in 2020, he lost by more than he lost in 2016. And so I wonder if he had kind of taken a step back in 2020 if it wouldn't have been as clear for the party that some of his ideas just aren't popular, even within the Democratic Party. That was Galen's way of saying Mike is right. (laughs) (laughs) If the standard is like, did the person win the presidential nomination, otherwise they're worse off, then I just think that's a silly standard and we have to look at kind of where they are now. No, 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 no. Fair enough, Nathaniel. Okay, we can debate actually that point by moving on to our next candidate, actually. Because from here on out, clearly these people did not win. But let's talk about Amy Klobuchar. So she ran. She didn't win. Little known senator who had a moment during the Kavanaugh Supreme Court nomination hearings. Where is she now? Is she better or worse off? Better off. Is there like a middle? Like, not really. Push. Push. Yeah, she's no different. (laughs) I lean toward no different, but better if there's an in-between there. 
Mm, okay, okay. <laughs> Nathaniel? I think she's slightly better off, but not significantly. Yeah, that's where I am. Okay, what's the rationale here? She got a book deal. She just wrote a book about monopolies. She got her shining moment at the inauguration. But then again, of course, she's still in the Senate. But she didn't lose anything, right? Well, she lost. In fact, she lost a lot, I guess, a lot of elections. But she raised her profile. She's still relatively young as a politician. She's 61, I think. So if she has future ambitions, I think she helped herself in 2020. She acquitted herself well. There was a couple minor scandals, but like minor in the sense of the amount of tension they got. But I think she came out on the other side with a bigger national profile, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I agree with that. She's got a prominent role in the Senate now. I think she's chair of the Rules Committee and seems to be playing a role kind of internally in negotiations within the party. Publicly speaking, so I, over the course of the 2020 presidential campaign, tracked favorability ratings among Democratic candidates, among Democratic voters. And so Klobuchar did become more famous. So her name recognition or the share of Democrats with an opinion of her went up 29 points, but her net favorability only went up by eight points. So it's not like Democrats really fell in love with her either. So I think clearly it's better to be more famous and well-known and more prominent, but it's not clear to me whether she like made herself a, a darling of the Democratic base to set her up for a future presidential run. So that's why I think she's a little bit better off, but like not necessarily in a significant way. All right, so let's start to motor through these. But before we do that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, next up on the list is Tulsi Gabbard. Micah? Worse off? Yeah, worse off. Worse off. Maybe in like one or two sentences, why? She was a rising star in Hawaii, kind of had a, a following on the left, but she ran a campaign that really nobody understood. And, and I think she ended up getting a lot of flack for her positions on things like Syria and using the same kind of analysis that I did with Amy Klobuchar, looking at Gabbard's net favorability rating, it really plunged down to negative 21 by the end of the primary campaign. All right. Next up is Elizabeth Warren. I think this is an interesting one, and I personally don't know how I would respond. Oh, I think this is easy. Better off. Actually, now that you said that so affirmatively, I feel like worse off. But go ahead. <laughs> I kind of see her in the same camp as slightly better than Klobuchar. I'd say better. I think this is a clear one where her reputation has gotten better, but maybe her political fortunes have gotten worse or at least stayed the same. Why do you say that? Why do you think they're worse? Well, because I don't think she is going to be able to run for president again. So, like, I think she's now in the, this position where she is kind of the intellectual leader of Democrats in the Senate. And that's kind of a nice emeritus position to have. But in practice, you'd rather have the, the raw power. <laughs> Wait, why won't she be able to run for president again? Just to age? She's on the older side. You know, if Biden retires in 24, she could conceivably run, but she would be on the older side. And then I think by 28, it'll be too late for her. See, I guess what I see here is just Elizabeth Warren was the type of person who had so much potential, huge star in the party, was appealing to the kinds of people who chart the news cycle in the media and so on. And then watching her do so relatively poorly compared to all of that like pent up potential means that she no longer has that star power potentially. I think she still has cachet with a chunk of the party, the well-educated intellectual left and that's significant because those people have soft power. You're right, because if the alternative is not running, I don't know that she would be like better off today in her career if she hadn't run. 
Right. She still has really good favorability among Democrats. She has 50-50 favorability with registered voters overall, according to that YouGov data, for a clearly progressive politician. That's about kind of the best you can hope for, really, particularly for a woman, given that, uh, you know, what we saw in 2016, a lot of the country still is sexist. Like, I just think she's still in a, a good position. All right. Next up is Mike Bloomberg. I don't feel like I should have to go first every time, but worse off. <laughs> worse. Worse. Maybe we don't need to belabor this, but would anyone like to offer some kind of unanimous statement? Did anybody run a poorer campaign than Mike Bloomberg in 2020? I mean, you could argue that it was very successful because he jumped in very late, which is normally a, a death wish, but he poured in a bunch of money and got, you know, he won American Samoa. Hey, I mean, he did. <laughs> he, he finished like, what, fourth in delegates or something like that? I don't know. But it was bad for his reputation. When he dropped out, he like cut off all his staffers or something pretty famously and left them without health care, which they weren't too happy about. So I can't imagine that. It was too well. Yeah, just in terms of like, bad stories or bad moments in your campaign per day. I think Bloomberg had one of the higher rates of all the candidates. All right, next up, Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, better off. Would you prefer to start going the other way? No, we can, we got it. I'm just being a Better (laughs) off. Better. Better off. Clearly, he went from being mayor of a smallish town to secretary of transportation, so. Yeah, biggest better off. Except for Biden? Yeah. He might be even better off than Biden. I mean, I don't know. I guess in terms of career, it doesn't get any higher than president. But from like vice president to president is less of a leap than mayor of South Bend to who he is today in the party, probably. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, he's getting experience running a Washington position, which like he didn't have four years ago or two years ago. Is it fair to say that Mike Bloomberg and Pete Buttigieg had the largest gains and losses in the 2020 primary? I do not think Bloomberg had the biggest loss. Ooh, okay, okay, okay. Then we'll have to we'll have to keep going. Next up is Tom Steyer. Push. Push. Okay. All right. That's legitimate. I don't know. I feel like he's kind of in the middle. I don't see him one way or another. Okay. Yeah, I would push also. We'll take it. Next up is Deval Patrick. He like hardly even ran. I don't know if it's even fair to test him here, but does anyone have a feeling either way? I would include him. I feel like he has a lot of promising things on paper and none of that kind of came it came to be so maybe worse off but i don't know i hear that because at a certain point it started feeling like getting in the race was almost like a joke and that people started being annoyed with the more and more people who got into the race yeah i feel like it'll be a push because i just think people won't even remember that he ran yeah that's true all right next up is michael bennett who in case people don't remember he's a senator from colorado i think Better off. (laughs) Okay. You know, I think he probably went from one in 10,000 people knowing who he was to one in 9,000. So that's an improvement. I would push on him. Same reason. I just don't think people will remember he ran. I agree with Mike. I think the fact that people know who he is now is helpful. And even after 2020, when it was clear that it was like Biden versus Trump, I think I saw Bennett looked at as like someone who could potentially run again. According to YouGov, 43% of people have heard of Michael Bennett. That's pretty good. That's a win. Yeah, Mm. I would have never guessed it was that high. Better off. Actually, maybe Michael Bennett's the overall winner here. (laughs) The next one's a good one. Andrew Yang. Better. Way better off. I say worse. Alex. Okay, Nathaniel. I think he's definitely better off. Why worse, Alex? All right, fight it out. Well, clearly it didn't help him in New York. I mean, it did in the beginning, but like, where do you go now after losing a presidential race and then losing a mayoral race? I mean, that's my argument as far as just like two losses. And we did an article on what happens when you have two consecutive losses and what that means for you in the future. So that's true. I think the New York race, he's worse off having run. I think the presidential race, he was better off because that put it, you know, he was a nobody. He was literally just a random businessman, one of thousands of, of people. And then he became kind of a minor celebrity within democratic politics. He was able to run for New York or really, you know, he could have taken probably a, a cabinet position or some kind of position in the Biden administration if that's the route he had wanted to go. He had a wide menu of options, which he then squandered. 
Yeah, I agree with Nathaniel and Alex. That's compelling. It was. I think that's the way to square the circle. Better off, far better off after presidential than squandered. All right. Another maybe just up-down one here, John Delaney, former representative from Maryland. I think he was the first person to enter the 2020 race, the Democratic primary. I'll say better. I think the same. I'm going to say worse because he's just become the butt of jokes on Twitter and nobody wants that. Twitter isn't real life, Nathaniel. (laughs) Yeah, but what is John Delaney's real life right now? Yeah. Think about how many people know who John Delaney is. Yeah, but not all press is good press. I feel like John Delaney is less popular than Michael Bennett, if I were to make a bet on it right now. Anyone want to bet or look it up? He's 116. 18% popularity. 51% name recognition, though. That's not bad. So better off. I was right. (laughs) All right, Cory Booker. (sighs) I got to say worse off. Yeah, I think I'd say worse. I would say the same. I don't know. I feel like perception of him was he's a happy warrior before he's a happy warrior after i mean i don't know what he's taken from 2020 that has helped him now like i think his big thing in congress right now is like police reform negotiations that have like gone nowhere so i just really don't know how his presidential run improved his standing in congress or anything i could definitely see him running again i'll say that but i don't necessarily think he's a better candidate because he ran in 2020. Yeah, I think the way I would put it is like before 2020, and this maybe this says more about me than Cory Booker, but like if I had had to guess, I would have thought Cory Booker would have done far better than he actually did. Now, look, it was a huge field of candidates. So maybe that has more to do with it than Cory Booker. But just the fact that he ran and did pretty poorly, I think, tells us something maybe about his appeal or his skills as a politician or the way he resonates or something. I was a bit surprised by that. So I think worse off. All right. Julian Castro. Better. I'd say better. Better, I guess. I'd say worse. Oh, why worse, Galen? There's a case for both. So I think he fell into a similar trap that maybe even Cory Booker did and some of the other people who ran for president, like Kristen Gillibrand, and to some extent, even Kamala Harris, which was like watching what happened during the 2016 primary and thinking that the energy of the party and the future majority within the party, or even the current majority within the party, was with the progressives and took a lot of pretty far left positions that hurt him in that primary, I think, and may well hurt him in the future. For example, decriminalizing crossing the border, abolishing ICE, Medicare for all. These were policies that became clear as the primary progressed. We're not helping the candidates who took them. And in fact, the people who ended up rising more and doing better, like Klobuchar or Buttigieg, rejected them. And ultimately, of course, the nominee and then president also rejected them. And so I think that some of these candidates have hurt themselves with kind of taking those far left positions in the 2020 primary. And Castro, I would say, is included because before that, he didn't have a clear political identity. He was a cabinet secretary, mayor of a big city in Texas. I think if he had held off a little more and maybe read the direction that the political winds were blowing a little better, he'd be better positioned going into the future. The reason I said better is because, like you said, Castro basically entered the race with like not much of a profile. I mean, he was always kind of polling in the single digits. But because of the conversation that he had on, what was it, like Section 1325, whichever one relates to border crossings, that was a big flashpoint among Democrats. And he started that conversation. And I feel like he was in a position to talk about border issues probably in a way that other candidates wouldn't just by virtue of being from Texas. I don't know if I could say like whether I think he would run again or what his future aspirations are, but I mean, he already has a job as like a new political analyst for I think NBC and MSNBC. I think if nothing else, he's just raised his profile and is helping pushing Democrats further to the left on border and immigration issues. I think I saw a report recently that he said he wasn't going to run for anything in 2022, although lots of people say that and then end up running. But yeah, I think I agree with Alex. All right, next up is Kamala Harris. Better. This one seems like it should be easy. <laughs> better, better, better. I'd say better, yeah. Better. All right, I don't think that needs an explanation. Steve Bullock? Worse? Yeah, worse. Push. 
I don't think it made a difference. But yeah, I'm pushed. My argument is he represents more of that moderate lane of the Democratic Party and Biden just won it and now has a vice president who presumably will occupy that lane once Biden is done serving as president and running for president. So if Steve Bullock has presidential ambitions, he just sort of now has to wait much longer. I mean, that was his shot. If he has presidential ambitions, he was term limited out as governor. He switched to the Senate race in 2020 and he lost by a respectable margin. I don't think, you know, considering the degree to which he overperformed, I think it's clear that his popularity as governor was front of mind for Montana voters more so than any presidential campaign or positions he may have taken. I don't think he put himself in a position like some other people we'll talk about shortly where he staked out some unpopular positions that would then hurt him back home. Unpopular positions that might hurt him back home. Might you have been talking about the next person on the list, Beto O'Rourke? Yes, I was, Galen. This is my nominee for biggest worse. Okay. I disagree. I think Beto's on the up and up. No way. It was a terrible, terrible decision for him to run for president. I think his standing is worse in Texas, but nationally, it's better. Oh, no. Everybody was making fun of him the entire campaign. Nationally, he was he was a darling after 2018. He was at the height of his powers. He could have run for Senate in Texas in 2020 and maybe, I don't think he would have won, but probably would have acquitted himself well again. He could have been better positioned to run for governor now, pulling like a Stacey Abrams type of position, but he was made fun of by the national press for some of his head scratchier comments, like I was born to run. And then he he staked out some positions on the left that I think will kill him in any future statewide runs in Texas. Yeah, that's why I say like in Texas, I don't think his standing improved, notably with like his hell yes, we'll take your AR-15s. Like he ran as more of a moderate against Cruz and obviously he can't do that now if he runs for governor in 2022. But I mean, right now he's getting involved heavily with the voting rights fight. And I think he's trying to position himself kind of in like a Stacey Abrams way of helping with that fight and helping flip the state, which I think could be better for him if he does choose to run 2024, whatever other cycle. I'll call it a push between Alex and Nathaniel. They both make compelling cases. All right. Bill de Blasio. One billion times worse. I'd say worse. Worse. He could have kind of worked on shoring up his legacy as New York mayor, and instead his legacy is going to be tied up with the fact that he was in Iowa during the blackout or a storm or something, and it's not good. Not a good look. I remember a stat from one point during the primary that there were only two candidates who had net negative approval ratings amongst Democratic primary voters, and they were Bill de Blasio and Marianne Williamson. So I think maybe that's all we need to say. But we should ask about Marianne Williamson. How is she doing? I haven't been following, if I'm being honest. Maybe that in itself is an answer. (laughs) So better, worse, or same? She's an interesting one because you could argue, I mean, like she was also kind of the butt of jokes, but she also went from being this extremely minor figure. Well, I guess she had a following kind of among her own fans, but but she did get a national stage. And if her goal was to improve her name recognition and her brand, which may have been true, then maybe she's better off by her own standards. And she actually did have a couple decent debate moments, if I remember correctly. Think about it this way. If she wrote a book today, would she make more money from it than if she wrote a book in 2018? We should redo this whole segment with that as a standard. (laughs) That's a great standard. And I think the answer is yes. And so therefore, I mean, pretty clearly what I don't think we have to beat her on the bush, like probably why she ran. And so I think part of the conversation here is like, what will other future people who are thinking of running for president going to take away from the class of 2020? Is it going to be that like, you should always run for president because there's no way you'll hurt your career? I think for some politicians, you definitely can hurt your career. And we've seen that here. I think for people who just want to improve their name recognition, get a longer email list and like sell books, Cynically, I say, why not? So I think when we do this again, we should do it like better off, worse off push, ambitions for political office, influence on the nation's politics, and then like selling books. Those are the three categories. A three by three matrix yeah. for 25 candidates. I know we got to wrap up here. So I want to I wanna just mention some names and let you talk about any particular winners or losers amongst them. Eric Swalwell, John Hickenlooper, Jay Inslee, Seth Moulton, Kristen Gillibrand, Tim Ryan, Wayne Messam, Joe Sestak. I think those are the only ones that we didn't get to so far. I don't think there's much of note 
for any of them. I've always found Kristen Gillibrand to be a really interesting politician. But, you know, I don't know how much I could say about how 2020 affected her prospects. Yeah, she she's in an interesting position right now because it seems like there's progress finally on the work of her career, which has been military justice reform and, you know, sexual assault cases and stuff like that. I'm not sure how much of that is due to the presidential run. So I think I'd probably say push on that. But I think being Gillibrand right now is probably pretty good. I agree. The candidates you listed, Galen, none stick out as having, you know, dramatically shaped the party to where it is now. Are you better off, worse off, or push after that segment? Galen? I am better off for having dug back into the depths of my brain to remember what the 2020 primary was like. Because apparently, you know, if you don't use your information, you lose it. And so I got to just keep the parts of my brain that are still thinking about Marianne Williamson in the 2019 Democratic primary debate still firing. Alex, better off or worse off? Better off because this was fun. (laughs) Nathaniel? I'm always better off having spent an hour with my great colleagues. Oh, I'm worse off. (laughs) Micah, get out. I didn't want to remember Eric Swalwell. I I could have done without that. Wow. Wow. Just saving the relentless shade for the very end. Well, let's leave it there. If you disagreed with us on any of these listeners, feel free to tell us. I'm sure you didn't have to be coaxed, but... There you are. You can email us. You can tweet at us. But that's it for today. So thank you, Micah, Alex, and Nathaniel. Thank you. Thank you. Make sure to check out 538.com. We got lots of great Olympics coverage. Oh, yeah. That's a really good point. The Olympics are happening. Folks, you can learn how to judge Olympic skateboarding on the 538 website. What more could you ask for? And all sorts of other great stuff. You can track medals. It's all there, 538.com. Until later this week, my name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary-Curtis is on audio editing. And Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments, as I mentioned. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.